Parenting for me is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I feel like it's the most rewarding job on earth. It's also the most challenging. Every single child, every single teenager, every single one of us has a need to be seen first and foremost by our Heavenly Father. But we also have a need to feel seen by those that we love and those that we do life with. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you here in the city in the summer. Uh, it's just so fun. I feel like everything is more fun in the summer, isn't it? Like walking is more fun in the summer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so this morning, we're in week four of the series on U Plus Parenting. I am very aware that there is a wide range of experiences as we've been walking through this U Plus Parenting series. Some of you are empty nesters, and so your kids have flown the coop. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Uh, and yet you also are sort of looking back. You're trying to negotiate what parenting adults looks like. Some of you are possibly near or considering being near the stage of life that Jenna, my wife, and I are in, where you've got young kids. You're kind of thinking about parenting a lot, and yet you're anticipating, like, it's going to get harder before it gets easier, probably here, as we walk through all the different stages. Or some of you may not even be dating anyone and be wondering what parenting has at all to do with you in this moment, and that's great. So to catch all of you, uh, this week I wanted to lean in to the topic of friendships, and we have this basic premise. Here it is. Every parent feels this desire to be friends with their children, and that's great, but the best thing you can do is not actually be friends with your children, but teach your children how to find good friends so that hopefully one day they realize you are the good friend that you have trained them to look for, right? But in order to unpack that, I needed to just first start with friendship in general and reflect with you on how hard, if we're being totally honest, it actually is to find and be a good friend here in the city. I recently had a chance to talk to my brother. Uh, my brother just moved to LA. I was literally on the phone with him this last week. He said something so striking to me that felt so relevant for this teaching that I was preparing. He said, I moved to LA three months ago, and I moved to LA because I had a job opportunity, because there was a beach, and because LA is cool, right? I think we could all agree. Like, good impulses all around on my brother's part. And yet, uh, he said, it's been three months. He said, you know, I think the thing I wasn't anticipating was how hard it would be to find new friends in LA. And if you can sit with his tragedy, uh, he was like, the beach is not that much fun if you don't have any friends to go to it with. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, so here is his last observation and insight. And I know this will hit a little bit close to home. I know I'm sort of dangerously stepping on a few toes here. Uh, but this is my brother's insight, and I really admire him for it. He said, you know, I've found myself in the last three months focused on the dating apps. He said, I've like been trying to connect with people at work and it's kind of hard, like I'm overseeing some people, it's hard to be friends when you're in a supervisor role. Uh, people who are my peers, it's kind of competitive, so it's great, we're connecting, but it never feels totally like relaxed and transparent. So he said, I've noticed the last three months I have been trying to date a lot and it's because I have actually been looking for a friend through the dating apps, and this was his wisdom to me, and this is all my brother's work, he said, you know, I think I, I'm beginning to realize I should probably try to find friends first rather than a date first in order to set up a good and flourishing life here for me in LA. 
I think, if we're being honest, and the stats and data uh, would confirm this, most of us are struggling on some level of the trajectory that my brother has struggled with living in an urban environment. We've come here because Chicago is cool, because there's fun things to do, north side of the city is amazing, we love the restaurants and the coffee shops, and we have a beach too, just in case you're thinking about LA, right? Like, we have a beach here in Chicago. Um, yet, I think for many of us, while we may not be on the dating apps, for many of us, there are some apps that we are turning to, in fact, can be Instagram, sort of slowly scrolling, following, liking, it can be Netflix, scrolling, watching, following, that we are hoping if we just invest enough time and energy in these apps, then maybe that loneliness feeling will go away. And yet the true work, the true need, is for us to actually find and be good friends in community. Um, I won't throw another stat at you. I've been throwing a lot of stats at you in the series. Um, but the very simple observation that keeps coming up again and again and again is that people are very lonely, uh, very, very lonely. We have 60%-ish of men and about 62% of women reporting in 2021 that they experience loneliness regularly within this last week. Um, I think if we're going to address what is a bit of an epidemic of loneliness uh, that I think we could all kind of identify, even as you think back on this last week, one of those low moments where you just realize you're alone, uh, the question becomes, what does the Bible have to say or what does a Christian faith have to offer when it comes to friendship and to thinking about friendship. So I want to take you on a bit of a journey. Um, I want to take you into what I'm calling a biblical theology of friendship. Now, biblical theology sounds very fancy. Uh, you can actually turn to your friend and say biblical theology. Would you do that for me? Turn to your friend, turn to the person next to you, say biblical <laughs> theology. You just got a little bit smarter, okay? <coughs> so biblical theology <coughs> is the attempt to not just sit on one passage, in scripture, not just one text, but to actually look at the whole of the Bible and ask where are the threads and themes of friendship taking us. If you actually try to find a passage in the Bible that talks about friendship, you'll notice it's kind of difficult to unpack the complexities, the nuance, the like bigness of scope uh, that is this huge question, how do we become good friends? So this morning I want to take you through more than one passage. I'm going to move a little bit quick. Uh, but I just wanted to draw your attention. We're going to go on a bit of a story arc to follow the Bible as it talks about friendship and why we need friendship so deeply. So to begin, I want to take you back to the garden, uh, which is normally where biblical theology starts. And we just want to observe this fascinating text that is as true today as it was however long ago this passage was written. In Genesis 2.18, we're told, the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, a suitable helper for him. Now, if you remember this creation story, what you find is that God creates Adam, right? He kind of scoops him up from the dust. And Adam is given this task to work in the garden. He's meant to kind of watch over it. He starts naming the animals. And yet Adam is alone. And I, I think it's quite profound that God, up to this point, has said everything he has created is good, right? If you remember those first six days, seven days, God keeps being like, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then all of a sudden, the camera comes to this screeching halt on Adam standing alone, and God says, whoa, this is not good, that he is alone. So God intends 
to make a helper suitable for him. Now, if any of you have been tracking the gender wars uh, that take place in Christianity, you may be feeling a little bit tense right now, right? Your like, shoulders are kind of arched because this verse has been used to do all kinds of damage. Here's where the English translation is helping us down. Helper is a terrible translation for the richness of what God says he is creating for Adam. Instead, the Hebrew word, azer, is actually someone who is a counterpart and at times is even a salvation, right? So azer, I don't have time to do this, could take you through the Old Testament, is used repeatedly for God's relationship to Israel in how God saves Israel over and over and over again, and is also used throughout the Psalms as Israel calls out to be saved by God. They say, help, Lord, be our helper, right? We need you. Come, fix this, fill this up, settle this, sort this. There's something missing at our side. We need a helper. We need you to come and save us. So the much better translation here is actually like a puzzle piece that is missing in Adam. He is missing his counterpart. The thing that would complete him, fill him up, would help him now be full and able to offer all of the tasks and work that he has been called to do in the garden. This, of course, is who Eve is. But let me keep you for just a moment because I have made the mistake for a long time in reading this opening passage thinking, uh, especially as I was single, and then I was dating, and I was kind of a romantic as I was dating, and I was like so excited to get married. I know some of you have been on this journey yourselves. Some of you are still in the early stages. Some of you have gotten married after sort of longing for this. Um, I always thought this was about marriage, right? That like, oh, like the man is completed by the woman. The woman like is completed by the man. This is so beautiful, like marriage together, man and woman. And that's, that's there. That's a part of it. But actually, I think a deeper reading of this passage is to note that friendship, right? It's the loneliness of Adam that is actually truly fulfilled by the friendship of Eve. And so there's a case to be made that we actually miss uh, some of what is happening here in the garden when we get so focused on love or even sexuality as kind of this like fulfillment, like I'll be finally satisfied if I find a sexual partner who loves me or if I can like commit to somebody in marriage, this will finally make me full. Instead, I think if we go here to what we were created for, we find Adam on his own is alone and not good. Eve as a counterpart is finally filling him up, but then God also is with them in the garden, and there's this sort of three-person triangle, right? That God is friends to Adam and to Eve, and that like together, they're now doing this work in the garden. Uh, the reason I go here is that the early church actually gets very interested in the fact that God as Trinity, right? It's very heavy, complicated, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three-in-one relationship, Trinity is this three-in-one. It's this three-in-one of intimacy and life and friendship. And God has now mirrored what's taking place within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on earth in this relationship between God, Adam, and Eve. Now, I realize we're in, we're in deep waters. Let me, let me have C.S. Lewis help us out here. C.S. Lewis is going to capture, I think, the point, and Lewis is going to make this argument that love, specifically erotic love, love that takes place in a marriage, love that's taking place between sexual partners, that kind of love is not the deepest kind of love. Instead, Lewis argues the deeper love, the more generous love, 
is actually the love of friendship. And he says this, it's just a great quote. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. Okay, so where we've gotten so far is that we've gone back to the Bible, we've started in creation, and we've established that we were created for friendship. In fact, I think Lewis is right. We were created for true friendship, deep friendship, a standing side by side with others that is open and generous and says, I would love for more to join this party of friendship that we are in. However, the Bible is very clear. Almost immediately, this friendship is fractured, right? This picture of friendship, which we feel ourselves maybe even stirred or longing for, is going to get ruptured almost right away. And It takes place first through deceit. Eve is deceived into mistrusting her friendship with God. Then Adam is deceived into mistrusting his friendship with God. And then they're kind of turned on each other. There's shame now introduced between the two of them. They're sort of hiding from each other, hiding from God. And this statement that's just going to be really loaded is God turning towards Eve, and he's going to say this. I'll put enmity between you, this is actually the serpent, and the woman between your offspring and hers. For the first time, enmity. Can you turn to your neighbor and say enmity? Go ahead. Enmity is introduced, right? And I think if we, if we play this out just a little bit, uh, friendship is fractured across the whole scriptures. Almost immediately in this next slide, we've got friendship is going to be fractured between God and humanity, right? We're hiding from God. We're covering up from God. We're avoiding God, resisting the friendship with God that we were intended to have. We're now resisting and avoiding each other. That same chapter in Genesis 3 says that the woman is going to desire her husband, and yet he's going to sort of rule or like be a tyrant over her. And this essentially sums up generations and hundreds of years of everything from patriarchy to slavery to nations ruling over other nations to all of the terrors and systemic injustices that we face today. And yet finally, I mean, to include in this sort of friendship fracturing that ruptures out, brothers, right? Almost immediately, these brothers who are meant to be each other's friends, Cain and Abel, the first brothers, are turned upon. And it's Cain who turns on Abel. And why does he turn on him? Because he feels jealous. He feels competitive. He feels the enmity within him that is already starting to play itself out. Uh, These, I think at the bottom, that I've got up here, would summarize some of what I will call the friendship killers friendship killers. You've got deceit. You've got competition. You've got envy. You've got strife. Uh, In my life, just to be clear, uh, I have experienced over and over and over again how subtle these friendship killers are. I'm sure if you think about your life, you can think of a time when you had a friendship killer. My classic example was in high school, uh, my senior year of high school. I had a supposed best friend, right? high school, these things are always messy. I would have told you if you asked me, he's my best friend, but he was more like my frenemy or my nemesis or like the guy closest to me that was always competitive with me. And it was kind of fine. Like we were working it out. Uh, He was very good at lots of things. I was very good at lots of things. We kind of had this natural overlap. We were good friends-ish, right? You hear it. You're tracking with me. Uh, And the problem was 
we both were on the men's volleyball team. Now, I know, I, like, I'm so cool. You couldn't think higher of me. <laughs> like, this illustrious high school moment, the pinnacle of the social ladder, was men's high school volleyball. Uh, but he and I were on this team, and I had trained all of junior year, was preparing for this glorious senior year run where I was going to be the setter, right? I was setting everyone up. It was going to be great. I loved it. Uh, he was the outside hitter, so we were playing together, we were on the same team, and uh, during the preseason of senior year, so this is, I think, October, November, uh, he's talking to the coach, and he says, you know, I've been practicing, I think I could try setting a bit, and the coach said, okay, great, uh, go ahead, why don't you try setting for a little bit, and before I knew it, he and I were rotating as setters uh, on the team, and then as the season started coming underway, it was very clear to everyone, unfortunately, even clear to me, that he was, in fact, a better setter than I was. And thus, he began starting uh, while I, my senior year, sat on the bench. Uh, here's the reason I tell this story. Uh, I didn't go talk to him about it like a mature 18-year-old would. I didn't, like, explore my own feelings. I didn't, like, maturely process through in community, you know, like, oh, this is a big disappointment, but we all experience disappointments. No, I festered on competition and envy. I hated him in my heart. I was so angry sitting on that bench. I remember, it's coming back to me even now, sitting there on that bench being like, oh, I hope he messes up, right? Like, <laughs> I hope he falls flat on his face. That's punishment for this. Uh, here's my point in telling that story. All of us are vulnerable to the fracturing of friendship. And actually, if we get really honest with ourselves, you've inevitably had relationships that have fallen away, that have fallen apart. Maybe it's family members, maybe it's someone you know, right? But like, we need to get honest about the fact that we tend to enact these patterns of friendship fracturing in our own selves. We are responsible for participating in this story. I let envy fester. But here's the good news. If the Bible tells us that friendships do indeed fracture, the Bible also gives us these pictures of hope at the true joy and glory that friendships could be. So I'm going to call this friendship restored. Friendship restored. Maybe you've had some friendships, good friendships, that have pointed like a sign to this hope of loneliness being expelled and like joy just blossoming forth. Here's some of the most interesting biblical examples of friendship, and I'll start maybe with the most startling one. This is Exodus 33:11. After humanity is kicked out of God's presence, after we're expelled from the Garden of Eden, all these things start to happen. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, Israel's in Egypt. Uh, they're under uh, slavery, they're suffering. Then God comes and saves them, and as God saves them, this incredible figure, Moses, has led them out of Egypt and is moving them towards the Promised Land. And we're told this, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Can you imagine for just a moment having the kind of relationship with God? This would take place in a tent. There was kind of a cloud that settled over the tent. And the idea, the picture that uh, the book of Exodus gives us is that Moses would be brought all these challenges from the people of Israel. There'd be conflicts, there were needs, there's kind of this enmity and strife that's playing out across Israel, and Moses would like gather it all up, and then he would walk into the presence of God, and then he would discuss it all with God and receive counsel and wisdom, and then would go back out and address the needs in Israel. Can you imagine, can you imagine having a kind of relationship with God 
where people would describe it when they think about you, saying, you know, you talk to God face to face as someone does with a friend. Now, I'm going to come back to this. We're not quite done with this thread of the story. But it's not just human relationships with God that are pictures of restoration. Let me give you some, some very real, like, life examples. Here's one of the most famous. It's almost impossible to talk about friendship without bringing this verse up. This is going to be 1 Samuel 18.1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, I'm jumping ahead. There's lots going on. I'm hoping you're keeping up. Saul is the king. David has been anointed as the future king. There's every reason Jonathan should be enmityed with David, right? There's every reason there should be envy and competition and like David's encroaching on his territory. But somehow, Jonathan is so moved and drawn by David and who David is that Jonathan commits himself to David. Like he, he, they will actually make this covenant together where Jonathan says, I am here for you, David, until your death. And we're told he loved him as himself. Now, here's what's so beautiful and yet interesting and challenging about this verse. When I read this, I don't know about you, I kind of think to myself, man, I clearly am David, and I'm just waiting on the moment when a Jonathan is going to, like, be moved by me. You know, like, <laughs> this is going to be so amazing when Jonathan, like, sees me and is like, wow, like, John is so great, and, like, I'm going to commit myself to John forever. The problem is we all want to be David, and yet none of us wants to do the work of being a Jonathan. Let me ask you this as you think about friends in your life. What would it mean or look like for you to commit yourself to a friend so much that others would look and say, you love that friend as much as you love yourself? Wouldn't that be incredible? And yet wouldn't that also be a little bit risky, a little bit costly, um, here's one other example, a beautiful example, one of my favorites, that's going to come from the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is this moving account, but I just want to draw attention. It's not just peer-to-peer. Uh, Ruth is actually going to do this with her mother-in-law, and she has every reason. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth's husband has died, the son of Naomi. Everything's kind of fallen apart. All the legal, social, cultural code was that now is the time that Ruth could kind of go back to her people. Ruth should just leave Naomi to figure it out because uh, Ruth's commitments and obligations are done. She's got nothing left that's really there for her. And yet Ruth is going to say this to Naomi as Naomi tries to leave. Don't urge me to leave you or turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Again, I, I bring up this verse because it's kind of kind of disorienting, a little bit uh, unexpected, maybe even vulnerable, to realize that again and again, the greatest friendships blossom not out of some sort of easy connection, you know, like, oh, we're just having such a great time together. It's very natural and intuitive for us just to be best friends all the time. No, they instead typically come from a deep sacrifice and a deep commitment that says, I will be here for you no matter what in your needs. Let me summarize it this way. Friendship, the friendship we're longing for, the friendship we really require, is a friendship born through presence, commitment, sacrifice, and love. 
And we see this over and over again. If we can do this, if this happens, then it actually becomes this incredible sign. Like these almost become history-shaking moments, right? When someone can commit themselves this truly, this beautifully, this sacrificially to a friend. So uh, if this is true, I, I want to just turn practically then, sort of land this plane, and ask what any of this has to do with parenting and what any of this has to do with your own friendships as you start to contemplate, maybe even as I'm stirring up in you, you know, who are those friends that you're close to? Who are those friends that you're getting closer to? Who are those friends that you're feeling the fractures, the damages in relationship to? And what could a picture of restored friendship look like for you? Uh, because I'm a preacher, I have three M's. Forgive me for my M's. Um, but let me just walk through these as a very practical example of how I think friendship is working, how you can think about friendships, and if, dare I say, you have kids or happen to think about kids, these, I think, become the helpful instructions. If I were to sit down with my children and they were to ask, how do I find a good friend? How do I become a good friend? I would offer them these three M's. Okay, so let's start with the first one. The first one is that a good friendship models. A good friendship always models. Uh, you have this in the book of Proverbs. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. There's this basic sense that, like, if wisdom is the model, if there's, like, goodness, if there's sacrifice, if there's commitment in this group of friends, you're going to become wise. Like, this is, this is going to take place. The model is going to start to imbibe itself on your life. But if you're walking with fools, there's a good chance that foolishness is going to be there for you. Um, I think what's interesting about this idea of a model is that all our friends, if you think about it, and I, I want to encourage you, think about your actual friends right now, whether they're coworkers, childhood friends, old friends, new friends, all of our friends are living in some kind of model of how they think life should go, like what they value, what they don't value. It comes out in subtle little comments like, oh, that was really cool. Did you see this on TikTok? Uh, did you go over here to this spot? Or it comes out and they're like, why are you wearing those shoes? Like, those sunglasses look really stupid, right? Or like, bikes, who bikes anywhere? Cars, who drives anywhere? Suburbs, who lives in the suburbs, right? This all sort of comes out in friendships. Um, every one of us thinks that we are living this autonomous, individual life where we have sort of searched within ourselves and we've come up with the best way to live, we've thought through all our options, and now we're like, this is it. This is the model of how my life should be. That's not actually the case at all. If you go back and think through your friendships, the far more powerful truth that's reaffirmed over and over and over again in all the studies and surveys and psychology and sociology that people do is that your friends' models are telling you what model you should live in for the values of your life. So let me give you just one more silly example from my own life. At the age of 11, I moved from Rockford, Illinois, another illustrious, wonderful suburb, uh, hallelujah, <laughs> praise Jesus, to Tempe, Arizona, right? A big shift from Midwest, Tempe, Arizona. At this point, as an 11-year-old, having searched within myself and, you know, sort of independently evaluated all my values and life choices, I consistently wore, and I'm not making this up, those rip-button uh, training basketball pants, right? You just rip them all. I would have shorts underneath, don't worry, like 11-year-old short basketball shorts, always ready. I always wore basketball shoes because you never know when you'd end up in a game, right? Like, you just need to be ready to jump in. Um, and one clothing was very big then. Any other 
90s children who were in the Midwest who wore and one, no, okay, I guess I'm alone, that's fine. Uh, and then a buzz cut. I had a nice buzz cut. I could, of course, show you all this photo of 11-year-old me. I don't want to do that. It's not worth going back in time to that point in my life. Um, the point, though, is that as I reflect on that, uh, the Bulls had just won the championship era here in Chicagoland. I thought basketball was the obvious choice for the greatest expression of any person's life, and my whole wardrobe and being reflected the value that was being instilled on me. I moved to Arizona when I'm 11, and what I discover is that everyone in Arizona is wearing rainbow flip-flops, uh, is wearing tank tops, has long hair, and uses an unnatural amount of bro and dude in their vocabulary, like <laughs> over and over and over again. Now, my question for you is, as an 11-year-old, how long did I last before I, too, started wearing rainbow flip-flops, had long hair, was saying bro and dude? The answer is about six months. Um, <laughs> it was about six months of wearing rip-off basketball pants and walking around and realized nobody is doing this. In fact, nobody, nobody wants me to like, jump into a game. Nobody is like, ready to, to do this. Basketball is not as big a deal here. This is not what we need. Now, the point of that story is that Every one of us right now is following a model that is being influenced by our friends. If you think about it, it's probably your family. Your family has a significant script that they've given you. It's probably your close work associates. You're seeing them about 40 to 50 hours a week. And then it's probably a couple of your close friends. And yet, if you really think about those close friends, you chose them probably because their model is aligned a little bit with yours. There's some similarities. Uh, but if you think about it honestly, it's probably those friends whose model is also influencing you subtly, and where you vacation, and how you spend your weekends, and what things are worth spending money on, right? This is going to lead to my second M, to just keep moving here, and we're almost at the end. My second M is mold. If you have a model that your friends are offering you, inevitably that model is going to be molding, and influencing, and shaping who you are. Proverbs says it this way, iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens another. I like that this image in Proverbs is of two very strong substances, right? They're the same substance. It's iron on iron. You don't think iron is very moldable or movable, but the truth is if you start grating iron against other iron, it's going to start shaping, molding, sharpening that iron. Um, this insight that friends mold who you are is all over the self-help books. Uh, I actually had a really fun sprint. I'm going to give you a couple of them here. Uh, these hopefully will hit in your gut. Here's the first one, a Chinese proverb. Understand that you will be like those whom you surround yourself with. Your environment is stronger than you are. Isn't that good? Your environment is stronger than you. Now here's another one. This too is very practical. These things are great. This is Jim Bone, who is a motivational speaker. He says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think, just sit with this one for a second, because I had to sort of settle into it. And at first, my impulse was, no way. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, actually, yeah, that seems about right. Average. There's a couple of my close friends who are definitely better than I am, right? Who are like definitely doing better, who are working harder, who are moving ahead in life. And then there's a couple of them that, you know, I, it feels nice to stand next to them when you're kind of considering <laughs> your life. Like, they could really do a little more work. But I am the average. So the question then is, who are you surrounding yourself with? Here's the last one. This one's fun. Nathaniel Bill, uh, Bibby is from Australia. 
He's apparently a LinkedIn consultant. You can follow him on LinkedIn. I thought he had a great turn of phrase here. If you hang out with chickens, you're going to cluck. If you hang out with eagles, you're going to soar. So the question then is, as you think about your friends, who are the friends that are modeling good life to you, and how are those friends molding who you are? If I was working with one of my children, I would actually want to walk through each friend. Be like, hey, what do you think they're, they're teaching you, showing you? Like, what do you think they value? What are they going after? Do they like good grades? Do they like sports? Do they like messing, out, uh, messing around? You know, like, what's the model that they're living in, and what draws you to that model? And how, because you spend time with them, are they shaping you? Like, they're definitely shaping who you are. They're shaping how you talk. They're shaping how you think. Are they a good friend? And are you being a good friend to help them even as you hope that they help you? Here's my last M, though, and this is going to hopefully bring this whole thing together. The last M is minister. If we are to model a good life to our friends, even as we are absorbing their models, if their models are molding us, even as hopefully we have some molding, that we're doing back in their lives, the last thought that really is a Christian thought is that the truest friend is going to minister from their life. Now, I looked up the word minister just to take sort of its root etymology. It actually comes from the Latin minus, which means less than, obviously. And uh, a minister, technically, even if you get over to the UK and their sort of parliamentary uh, system, a minister is a representative who has authority but is there to serve. So ministry is all about like you are a servant, but you are serving strongly or powerfully or on behalf of another with authority. The reason why I think this matters is that this incredible verse takes all of the biblical theology of friendship and just like blows your mind. If it hasn't come to mind already, this is from the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to be sitting with his disciples, and if you track with the picture, Jesus begins first by getting on his knees and serving them. So Jesus serves them, and then he turns around and he says to them, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Jesus comes in this great reversal as God to say, I want to restore my friendship with you. And yet the picture is, if you become friends with God, your friendships now allow you to go back and to minister or to serve the friends that you are with. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes here as we just pray to wrap this up. As you think about the friendships you have in your life, and I invite you to just think really concretely, there are people you are spending time with. Maybe you wouldn't even consider them friends. Maybe these are your work acquaintances. Maybe these are your drinking buddies. Maybe this is your mom who you call every Thursday night, right? We're all surrounded by friends. What is the model that they are offering to you? What's the model that sort of pictures these values, these dreams, these hopes, these desires? How are you being molded and shaped by these friendships? And is it possible is it possible that just as Jesus came not to be served but to serve, is it possible even as you sit in this grand sweeping hope in the Bible that we could actually be the kind of friends that restore the communities God intended us to live in? Is it possible that you could be the kind of friend who ministers, who serves, who maybe even commits yourself 
to your friends in an explicit way that says, I want to be here for you. Is it possible that that is actually what we need when it comes to our loneliness? Not just to find good friends, but to become good friends. Jesus, I pray, even now over our church, I pray as as there are hopes and dreams of parenthood, I pray for parents who are thinking about their adult children, parents who are thinking about raising up young children, I pray, Jesus, you would teach us to be good friends so that we can help our next generation find the kinds of good friends that will allow them to flourish in friendship with you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.